Today on the podcast, we answer the eternal question, do clients choose their attorneys or do attorneys choose their clients? Okay, we don't actually answer that, but we do talk about it and about what it has to do with a superstar lawyer and the country's biggest law firm. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. So here's a quick question. How many times have you argued a case before the Supreme Court? Probably zero times, and if not zero, maybe one or two tops. Paul Clement, on the other hand, has argued before the Supreme Court more than a hundred times. He won a case there earlier this week, and he won another one last week. In between those two victories, Clement also quit his job at the biggest law firm in the world. Busy times for this guy. That's what we're going to be talking about today, why superstar appellate litigator Paul Clement quit his job at Kirkland and Ellis. Well, actually, we know why. Kirkland said it would no longer work on Second Amendment cases, and Clement, who just won a huge Second Amendment case at SCOTUS last week, couldn't abide by that, so he walked. But was he right to walk? Or to put it differently, was Kirkland wrong to wash its hands of gun rights clients? That's what we're going to be talking about today with Roy Strom, a reporter here at Bloomberg Law. Roy says this gets right at the lawyers and clients question I posed at the top there. And it's a newsworthy question because, well, Paul Clement is Paul Clement. So Paul Clement is pretty much without a doubt one of the most successful lawyers in private practice in America right now. He is a Supreme Court specialist. He's an appellate lawyer. He was the solicitor general under the George W. Bush administration. Um, so he was the guy who went into the Supreme Court to argue on behalf of the U.S. all the time. And he's done that, appeared before the Supreme Court over 100 times in his career, which is a huge number and one that very few other lawyers can match. Um, and he did that, of course, most recently for law firm Kirkland & Ellis, which is the largest law firm in the world by revenue. Uh, and an extremely lucrative place to be a partner. The average partner at Kirkland last year earned uh, more than $7 million, according to an industry uh, publication. But Clement and his colleague, Aaron Murphy, uh, have left the firm after they say Kirkland leadership gave them an ultimatum, which was to either stop representing their client or withdraw from the firm. That's that's the way that uh, Paul Clement has framed what happened. and. Kirkland and Ellis, for its part, has said that they will no longer handle cases involving the interpretation uh, one way or the other uh, of the of the Second Amendment. So the interest I mean, the, this is uh, interesting for a lot of reasons. But the other interesting thing is this is not the first time that Clement has done this, where a firm has given him an ultimatum over a controversial client and he walked. Can you talk about the other time that he's done this? Yeah. So in 2011, he left another big law firm, King & Spalding, after the firm had stopped representing at the time the U.S. House of Representatives in its challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act, which, of course, defined marriage as between a man and a woman. Um, Clement wanted to defend that act, which was eventually struck down by the Supreme Court, and um, he left. And... It's really not the first time that that wasn't the only time that big law firms have found themselves um, having partners depart to defend uh, cases that the law firms don't want to be associated with. And in another gay marriage case, a, a Winston and Strawn partner in 2014 left the firm to represent Utah, uh, defending its uh, bar against same sex marriage and other firms face pressure as well to drop clients. 
but they don't always agree to it. Um, for instance, Paul Weiss, which is another huge law firm, has faced protests from law students to drop Exxon, uh, the oil company, as a client. Uh, but they continue to represent the oil company and uh, they helped it win a major climate change liability case uh, that the firm is proud to say they won. Yeah, so that's that's the next question I was going to ask you is, you know, how often do these firms make these kind of political stances where they say, we're not going to represent this type of client or we're not going to work on this type of issue? It sounds like they actually, you know, firms have a history of doing this, but it's not that common. Is that fair? I think so. I mean, it doesn't happen every day in the course of these big law firms' existence. Yeah. Um, these issues um, typically aren't the ones that make big law firms a lot of money. Uh, so social causes, um, these types of civil uh, rights issues aren't really the main business driver for big law firms. And these firms are huge businesses and they represent a wide swath of American corporate interests. Kirkland and Ellis is not going to go bankrupt by losing, you know, some Second Amendment clients. Like, you know, if it was Merrill Lynch or J.P. Morgan Chase, that'd be, you know, a different story maybe. But, um, you know, this I have to imagine that representing these types of gun rights clients is such a small part of Kirkland and Ellis's business that it wasn't difficult for them to to say we're not going to work on this anymore. I don't know if it wasn't difficult. I, I imagine it probably was pretty difficult a decision uh, because these lawyers are extremely successful. They're very highly regarded. Kirkland and Ellis is a firm that uh, wants to be the best at everything it does. And certainly having a Supreme Court uh, practitioner who's argued 100 cases is a is a benefit to them. Somebody who's very experienced in that and well known for it is exactly the type of person that they want to have in every type of practice that they uh, work in. Um, but I've, I've reported on the firm a lot. I've spoken with people who were there, who, who left there. Uh, and even before this, there were people at the firm or people who have left the firm who questioned uh, why the firm would handle some of the cases that he's involved in, um, mostly from a business perspective. They just thought it was kind of a distraction from the type of work that the firm typically does, which is represent private equity clients and mergers and acquisitions broadly. They do pretty much everything, but that's their main practice. That's their business driver. Um, and I don't think Kirkland and Ellis typically has not been a firm that people would look at and say they're making ideological choices one way or another. You bring up a good point that I guess from a financial perspective, dropping the Second Amendment clients might not be a hit to Kirkland and Ellis, but losing Clement himself uh, could be since he is, it sounds like he's kind of irreplaceable. I mean, there aren't very many, if any, Supreme Court litigators who've argued over 100 cases before the court. What is Kirkland and Ellis going to do? I mean, is can they find someone to uh, step into his shoes or is it just kind of, you got to take the L here? Yeah, I think... Like you mentioned, and like I've said, he's he's excellent at what he does. I don't think that means that Kirkland and Ellis won't be able to find or doesn't already have, certainly already has, um, appellate lawyers um, who will be able to appear before the U.S. Supreme Court and represent the firm's clients on that stage. Uh, Kirkland has a, a very strong litigation group. They often talk about how they give young lawyers opportunities to 
uh, get involved in cases at a much earlier level. They talk a lot about developing their uh, talent, and I'm sure they'll be able, they, they have people who can uh, handle these types of arguments. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of other law firms with a Supreme Court practice more recently have sort of uh, divvied up the spoils, uh, let younger lawyers appear before the Supreme Court in a way that really didn't happen before. This was a more specialized practice at a lot of firms where you just had your one or two people who did this. Um, and that's changing in the big law landscape. So that's certainly an option available to the firm. And they feel they're well positioned to handle these cases regardless. So I want to read uh, from the statement that Clement issued last week when he announced he was leaving. Uh, He said this, anyone who knows us and our views regarding professional responsibility and client loyalty knows there was only one course open to us. We could not abandon ongoing representations just because a client's position is unpopular in some circles. I get the sense that you have a different view here that, you know, this raises, of course, the issue that has been ongoing in the legal industry for uh, ever that, you know, do clients choose the attorneys or do attorneys choose the clients? What are your thoughts on that? What do you think? Well, I think it's a tricky issue. I think certainly there's that's his view. He, He feels very strongly that way. And of course, everybody knows lawyers are asked to represent unpopular clients. Uh, There's a rule in criminal cases, of course, that everyone uh, gets a lawyer. If you can't afford one, you get a public defender. Uh, That's really not what's happening here. Uh, Clements represents pretty well-heeled corporate interests in civil cases. There's no rule that uh, the civil case uh, gets a lawyer. Or certainly certainly gets the lawyer that they, they want. Right. Right. If clients deserve lawyers. It doesn't necessarily have to be you, uh, especially if you're working at a giant law firm that has other interests involved. Um, and I think these clients will, will for, certainly be able to find and pay other lawyers. Uh, they'll be able to continue to pay him. But law firms certainly can stop representing clients for any number of reasons, uh, just as long as they're not responsible for any sort of imminent court action on their behalf. From an ethical perspective, it sounds like there's no uh, ethical problem with an attorney in a civil case uh, saying, hey, I don't want to represent you anymore, Um, you know, sayonara. Certainly not. Like I say, just as long as you're not in the middle of a litigation where you're responsible for some imminent court filing in that situation, you have to ask the judge to be withdrawn from the case. Judges are pretty lenient about granting those withdrawals as long as the client has other representation lined up. Uh, But it's certainly not unethical for a lawyer to say, I don't believe in this cause or law firm to say, I don't believe in this cause. We're not going to work out on it going forward. There's nothing wrong with that. Finally, uh, I want to talk to you about kind of where what this means for the legal industry overall. I mean, there's always there always have been firms that tend to represent more liberal clients or firms that tend to represent Democrats. And then there are firms that represent Republicans or, you know, clients who are more conservative. Um, do you think that this is accelerating? I mean, this is something that sociologists and, and uh, you know, demographers talk about as the big sorting, where people are sorting themselves into communities that have ideological 
similarities with themselves. Um, is this happening in the legal industry or has this always been happening in the legal industry? Yeah, I think to some extent it's, it sort of exists already uh, within the high-end legal market. People know the lawyers who represent conservative causes and liberal causes. You know, this comes up more, I think, in the context of lobbying practices. A lot of Washington, D.C. firms have lobbying practices where their business traditionally has been to have former politicians or influential lawyers on both sides of the aisle because they want to be able to represent clients successfully no matter what uh, administration is in place. And I think that model still exists. Those law firms still operate that way. And in terms of one-off litigation uh, involving these types of issues, I don't think um, conservative causes are, are having a hard time finding lawyers to make their arguments in front of the Supreme Court. Certainly the, those those arguments have been uh, pretty successful recently. Um, and so I just think you might see fewer uh, big law firms uh, on that on that side going forward. All right. Well, that was Roy Strom uh, speaking with us about Paul Clement, big law and politics. Thank you, uh, Roy, for joining us. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. That will do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw, and I'm at David B. Schultz. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and have a great Fourth of July vacation. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court, the filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Bloomberg Law's Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon of the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.